just to get started, thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, it's wonderful to have you. So um, I think the, a good way that we'd love to start is maybe doing a little bit of introduction to you uh, and Fashion for Profit, maybe, and uh, tell us a little bit of your story. We'd love to hear. <laughs> oh, there you go. Just got the 11th edition done. That's, so. <laughs> that's wonderful. So tell us about it. Well, this really started when I was teaching at Otis College of Art and Design and, um, you know, more on the art side and realized that if you don't know business, you're not going to make it well, no matter what you want to do. So I started a class right. for further education on um, entrepreneurship and business. And then that led me to, from the course, turn it into a book. And then at that time, I met somebody who wanted to start the Fashion Business Incorporated so I left teaching full, my full-time professorship there and went and started a non-profit at Fashion Business Incorporated. And the book now, as I say, it's in its 11th edition. It's 20 years later. So. That's amazing. So what, is, what was the course about originally and what does the book cover? Well, it's about um, everything from business planning, uh, knowing your market niche, branding, how to cost a garment, Everything that really I felt that was not being taught in the further education, which they should have. Now, I think they are doing now. There are a lot of more colleges are, in, you know, including that business side. So um, I, it's used, my book is used, and I've got two other books, a costing and a branding book that's used as um, a supplement to it. And then I've written a lesson plans to go with the book. So you can teach, you know, 16 weeks using the book and with all the questions and answers. So it's basically the, a roadmap for a student to be able to launch a an apparel brand, a fashion brand, end to end, from zero to scaling the brand and making sales and so on. Yes, exactly. And now you know things have changed so much as we know. So it's not only for students. You know, I do a lot of presentations at different trade shows. So that's when I get most of my um, most of my sales when I do the presentations to people who are just starting out. So it's. That's wonderful. So do you find uh, are, are the the kind of the consumers of the bias of the book, are these entrepreneurs that have already launched their businesses or starting out? Yeah. Um, do you also find, are these like schools maybe that are interested in the curriculum? Well, some of the, or is it yeah, most entrepreneurs? No, some of the colleges do use it as a curriculum. Um, and um, I just had a, last year I had a, a Chinese university in Shanghai wanted to use it. So I went through having it copyrighted, you know, $9,000. And I don't know if you've ever worked with Chinese, but I'm still waiting for it to really happen. They're probably using it. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably using a thousand different versions of yeah, it already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so give me a little bit of background. Um, how do you arrive at, at this publication? How do you arrive at being a professor? Um, what kind of led you up to, to that opportunity? Well, really... Um, my, I was born in Manchester in England. That used to be the textile center of the, of the world at one time. All the cotton came into Manchester and it, it was damp and rainy. So it, the spinning and weaving was the right kind of moisture to do that. And so it was, there were mills everywhere. And my mother was from Nottingham and my father, he was a textile chemist. And my mother designed clothing for her brother who had a factory and her sister had a couture dressmaking company. And when it came to me going to art college, I wanted to do graphic design. 
my mother said, no, do fashion design because you can always design for you. You can always make clothes for your children. So, you know, it was immediately put down. But <laughs> So I went to college and did one year fine art and then you did three years of fashion design. And when I graduated, I was um, invited to, to work for the company I'd done internships. So I worked there and then um, the college where I was graduated from asked me to go back and teach one day a week. And the fellow I was working for kind of took me under his wing. He said, you've got to do that. This is the beginning of, you know, something. So it really is, that was opening up a door to being a designer and an educator, which, you know, fast forward, I'm still doing, which I enjoy very much. That's amazing. I um, You said your mother was from Nottingham. Yes. Yeah, I went to university. You did? Oh, it's my father went there. Yeah. Yeah, I went to Uni of Nottingham. Not Trent, uh, Uni of Nottingham. Oh, my brother lives there still yeah. in... Um, he lives in Ed Walton uh, with his family oh, kids. Yeah. yeah. Not a lot. Most of my family are in Nottingham area. So what were you doing there? Uh, so I started engineering there. What kind of engineering? Um, I'm originally originally from Spain. And so mm -hmm. I, I got accepted to Uni of Nottingham. And then I did mechanical engineering right. uh, with a minor in uh, computer science. And then I moved to London um, and I studied uh, product design industrial and product design at uh, Brunel in uh, Uxbridge in West London. Yeah, that's congratulations. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it's funny. It's it's a small world, but um, I spent a lot of time in the Midlands. And uh, we used to do this uh, charity runs on Sundays, and we'd go to Manchester a lot. Uh, I'd get on a bus at like five in the morning and uh, just go around Manchester and they shake in the tin can and oh. trying to get donations yeah, yeah. to every Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> the rack rates. Yeah, my, my first. I remember. Did you go to Macclesfield at all? I don't know. I don't remember. It was in Cheshire, but that was where my, the first company I worked with was in, in Macclesfield. And then I went to London and then Bristol and, and then I went to Germany and ended up working on Airbus for four years. I was at the Oktoberfest and I was an out of work fashion designer. Oh. <laughs> there were all these German engineers sitting there and this older engineer, you know, I was like 22 or 23. And he said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a designer. He said, we need designers. He said, can you start on Monday? He obviously assumed I was, uh, you know, an aircraft designer, but I started work on Monday and I ended up working as a technical drawer with the, with the engineers for four years. So it was quite, Oh my God. So you were just doing 2d drawings and like, <laughs> Oh wow. Yeah. So you ended up at Airbus for four years. Yes. Yeah. Incredible. It's funny. What a great story. So, so how do we go from there into ended up in California? Well, I mean, it's a big, my, it's a big journey. My German husband, I married, we took a year off and traveled around the world, but he had a green card. And so after traveling around the world and getting married in Sri Lanka, we, um, came to oh, wow. we came to New York and bought an old car and drove through America, and uh, ended up once I I kind of drove. We felt like driving fast through some of those red states, but when we got to California, it was like, okay, I like it here. We're staying, so we stayed here four years, and then I had my two children. Then we moved to Seattle for four years, and then he had an opportunity to go back to Munich, and I thought that would be we thought that would be good for the kids to have that experience. But it wasn't that easy being over there because they get out of school at 12 o'clock. So it's not easy to yeah. work. And then we went back to, came back to California. So this is where we've been. But no, I was actually went back to see my sister last, um, when was it? When the, when the Queen's funeral was on. I didn't plan it that way, but I happened to 
be there in London with my friend. And then I went up, got the train to Manchester, but all the funeral, it was just amazing actually to see, to see all that pomp and ceremony. Yeah. <laughs> quite, a, quite. A I mean, it's quite impressive. It was, yeah. So what, what are you doing? How did you change from engineering and do what you're doing? Now? You know, it's funny. It was, uh, it was, uh, not as interesting of a story as yours, but I, uh, you know, was, I, I came to California to build a software company. Um, and I built and sold it in 2017. Which one was that? Um, it was HR enterprise software. So, so right out of university, I, I kind of stumbled upon an opportunity to get into software. And, you know, this was in the middle of like, um, you know, the, the recession 2008 and, I, you know, there were a ton of opportunities. And so I kind of like went into entrepreneurship without really intending to. Um, I just, I knew I didn't want to work for, you know, an engineering, engineering company in the UK. Like, uh, you know, the most, most of the students ended up at BAE systems and some of those companies. And it's never really for me. Um, and so I built my first software company that failed pretty miserably. And I, I moved to Philadelphia, um, uh, on a ESTA, on a tourist visa to, to do that. And so I was coming in and out of the country every three months oh. and, and living off savings. I used to, when I went to, uh, when I did masters in London, I used to work as a handyman in, Brick, in um, South London. And, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking on Southwest London in a very posh area. Um, Southwest. Anyway, Richmond park, Richmond. Oh, park. Richmond. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I used to work. Yeah, exactly. So that's great. So, you know, the, you know, it's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like, I guess, old money there. Uh, a lot of older people with, you know, really nice homes. And so for some reason I got connected to a friend and I just became a handyman and saved a bunch of money. Wow. Uh, I was charging 25 pounds an hour at the yeah. time, which was great. Um, I did everything from like furniture painting to like fixing light bulbs. Good Lord. So, Changed your uh, side so of your brain had to use a different tap. Completely. Exactly. It was just a need, you know, I, I didn't have the money, so I had to, had to earn it. And so I ended up in the States in Philadelphia, building that company failed. And then I ended up moving to LA to build a second company that did really well. Um, and uh, through that company, I ended up getting, you know, the visa sponsored and staying here. And then I built a third company, which was uh, when I, it was sort of the closest thing to media. So we build a, with my business partner today at our agency, uh, it's a production management software. So essentially back office for production studios. Wow. And we did really, really well. And then unfortunately COVID happened and all the production stopped back in 2020. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, as an offspring of that software company, we ended up building a production agency. And, uh, you know, that's been that's what Dilly is today. And Amazing. So, Fantastic. you know, that's how I ended up here. <laughs> but we do, we do, you know, we do a lot of um, interactive media. So we just did Revlon's worldwide um, AR and VR lipsticks, uh, lipstick filters and uh, virtual experiences. So we not just, we not just do traditional media. We also do some more nuanced interactive media. Wow. It's amazing. So, Congratulations. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, we both we both flew over from the same part of the world. I would have to laugh about the the first time I went to London when I went from Manchester. I was about sixteen, and you probably came across some of the snobberism snobism in London, right? No, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was at a 
Especially coming down from the Midlands, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, I went, went to this kind of snobby party and, uh, and, the, and everybody was walking around with their glasses and stuff and I was 16 and suddenly this woman trotted over to me and she looked at me and she said, excuse me, but where are you from? So I said, I'm from Manchester. She said, Manchester, where's your cloth hat and your clogs? <laughs> Oh my! God. So, you know, when I started working in London, I'd go and meet friends in posh hotels and start talking stupid crap like that. You know? <laughs> just to be, on, be in the yeah, world. just to that's piss funny. them off or whatever. You know. So, oh, that's funny. But you've got no accent if you're from Spain. You know, it's funny. I um, when I moved to the UK, I spoke. I barely spoke English. So the first few months were really difficult. And once I got acclimated, the good thing about going to Nottingham versus London is that there were no Spanish people. So all my friends were from all over the UK, from Wales to South London to Irish. And so I actually developed quite a, a bit of a, a kind of a mixed British accent mm -hmm. for a long time. And then, you know, 10 years ago or nine years ago, when I moved to the States, um, I started doing business in the, in, the U in the US and the accent sort of morphed into kind of a international English accent. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, it sort of changed over time based on the, the lingo of the place. But I think what's really interesting is that, you know, you see, and I guess nowadays it's a little bit easier to move around. Um, but, you know, not that long ago, 15 years ago, I guess there was no social media. So, you know, it felt like more of an adventure to go and study abroad and, oh, yeah. you know, travel and we, I guess I didn't have, I don't feel like I had the visibility into what the world was about that uh, an 18 year old has now. So where, what part of Spain um, are you from? I'm from the North. I'm from the uh, Northwest Galicia, the Celtic part of Spain. Lovely. Oh, beautiful. So, we, yeah, I don't know if you heard about it, but it's, it's a big unknown and we have, you know, bagpipes and skirts and, oh, wow. you know, very similar to the Irish. Then we're, we're tall and, and, Fair skinned. So not the idea that people have of Spain. No, beautiful. No, it's a lovely area. Yeah. My brother's got a place yeah. in Mallorca, so they go there, you know, get oh, away. Wow. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah, it's much nicer. It's much much nicer weather, that's for sure. No, it's lovely. Um, but anyway, so so tell me more about right now with the book. Is the intention you're in, you know, they say you're in the 20th um, edition? Oh, 11th. 11th edition. Yeah. So... What is the intention? Is the intention to continue pushing out new editions every year, every couple of years to update it? Well, or do you want I to just, you know, transform it into something else? Well, really what I found that the, the industry had changed so much. And um, the, as you know, the big department stores have been really struggling. So there's more direct sales to customer B2C. And also um, there's sustainability, which is huge now. So I have added a whole new chapter on sustainability, which is, you know, really key. And especially for younger people, whether it's recycling, upcycling, you know, using sustainable fabrics. Mm -hmm. this, these are the things that are really, really important. You know, things like I've been working, I think, you know, I was working with the United Nations and um, just consulting recently with the Egyptians and saying you have to start somewhere even if it's with your hang tags, you know, get those, you don't need those plastic hang tags, which will end up in some turtle's mouth or a fish's mouth and, you know, go to some more sustainable labeling, even just begin with that and begin with packaging that's sustainable. 
and then start going forward with materials and how how things are being produced. Also nearshoring as opposed to going to China or India, you know, bring it back. I mean, that's, think of the fuel bringing, shipping goods backwards and forwards. So, and also the department stores are looking for speed to market so they can, uh, if you do nearshoring and domestic, I mean, you probably, you know, we're foreign, but I always criticize America in the fact that they don't, have not invested in their own infrastructure. So, you know, no, because they're capitalists, right? So the country must focus on unit economics versus building infrastructure internally. Well, it's a shame because I think that would in, it would increase their economics if they had things like rapid trains from here to Vegas or San Francisco, or they'd invested in new factories. You know, the factories downtown, if you ever go downtown, there's still, you know, little beat up little corridors in the back that you can't get a truck down and, now, after the pandemic, you can't even find sewers. Nobody's going back to work. They've gone into... But the problem you have there, Francis, is that is, is, is it more affordable? Is it like, is it, not, not even to say more affordable, but is it price competitive? Like, think about it, you know, one of your clients are by the book, they want to launch an apparel brand. Uh, you know, it's fairly easy nowadays. There are plenty of like free or affordable tools to like get a brand started. But as they want to scale production, how feasible is to do that in one of the downtown factories versus outsourcing things to China for a well, fraction of the cost. They are um, doing a lot more with robots and there are factories being built now with robots to produce the goods. And I know in Arizona, there's one and there's one in Northern Carolina. So there are people investing in robot factories. I mean, I know, um, you know, American Apparel, well, it's now Los Angeles Apparel, Dove Charney. He has some robots, but he's, um, Work, there's a software company called Tuca, and you know you can have a pattern made to your body. Scan your body in, the pattern's made to you. You can choose your styles, then the pattern's cut to you, and it's, so it's individually cut. It's swinging more to that method as opposed to that personalization yes. and like yeah. made to order. Yeah. And that's called Tuca, T-U-C-A. T-U-C-K-A, Tuca. And uh, so they, they did a great sh fashion show downtown. They, at the New Mart, they had a runway. And I, I, either side of the runway, they had big panels and you could see the models or, you know, these are avatars with different styles on and they fitted them with different, you know, body types. And eventually, once they decided it, then the model walked out from the, from the front down the runway with the finished garment on. So it, there is just some individual... Um, creations of how people can make their garments these days as opposed to doing mass production. And, you know, look at the landfills. They're just full of textiles. So it's one of, it's a 27th percentage uh, polluter in the world of is textiles and clothing. And so we have to get that under control. So it's, it's a massive subject, whether or not it's the fabrics or whether it's the shipping. You know, a lot of people going near shore and, and that's also duty-free is in Mexico and Peru and Colombia, those places you can get um, duty-free, which is also it's also a good incentive as well. And you're saying that obviously the factor of distance is a big selling point. So the, the footprint is much lower if you manufacture in Mexico than if you manufacture in China, have to ship the goods across the ocean. Right, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and... Um, I've been to China and seen how they manufacture there these big factories, very 
sterile, very clean, you know, and then you find out that the actual, um, the sewers, is, the women are sitting in diapers because when they go to the bathroom, they get no break because they're lining up, you know. So, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all these weird things that happen in these places. <laughs> and then they all live in the back in, in uh, dormitories. They don't go home. They've come in from middle yeah. countries. You've probably seen it as well. It's horrible conditions, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing is you mentioned, you know, the sewers, they don't want to go back to work in downtown LA. Yeah. So I wonder if there's a gap between where we need technology to be today and to compensate for the fact that a lot of those people no longer exist. Um, like, I don't see anyone in sort of the new generations to say, I want to grow up to be a sewer. Right. It, it, I guess it doesn't happen. Why Why are we, everybody gets concerned about these illegal immigrants or immigrants coming in illegal, illegally, illegally, and you know we've gone through this. You're not allowed to work. So why not yeah. give them an opportunity to train them to be sewers and they can earn some money and fill a gap that's much needed? I don't understand that. In the market. I wonder, like, I mean, in terms of technology, how far off are we from automating some of those like more basic garment oh, manufacturing processes? Oh yeah, no, they, they, they have there. that. Yeah, I've seen there are factories set up with that robots. Yeah, and so and, and and I mean even even to manufacture things that are more complex than just a tip, you know typical t-shirt, sweatshirt, but things like that are more I guess intricate, you know dresses and. Items like that. Uh, robots, not quite so much on that, but definitely for t-shirts, simple, repetitive garments, definitely easy. Yeah, they do that. So I, do you think there's, you know, when, when you have an upstart brand, say that starts in California, for example, do you think a lot of it is also education? So they're not aware that these solutions already exist a few miles from their home base. Oh, yeah, everybody's looking for sourcing. Very difficult. You know, the, when I go to these the big magic show in Vegas and talk there. A lot of them are looking for sourcing. They're looking, where can they get the fabrics? Where can you get the, the garments made? And, you know, then of course, finding sales reps and getting going that way to get to the, the retailers. But the, as I said earlier on, there's now this big push for new companies to sell direct um, and keep, keep it, you could, your profit margins much better, isn't it? I mean, if, when, when you say sell direct, you mean direct to consumer through, say, their own website, yeah, for example, exactly. versus going through a distributor or large retail. Yes, because if you say you're selling something, you've made something for, say, you make something for $30 and then you're selling it for 60 the retailers typically mark up 120%. So they're then going to sell that for like 150 So if you can sell direct for 60 then it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I wonder, I mean, because there's also a cost of attracting those eyeballs into your website or some sort of like your web property, right? You have to run ads, um, you have to drive traffic to your website. So although the economics might seem obvious, there's also a cost of acquisition of those clients, which the retailer kind of does for you. Yeah, you right? can do pop-up um, stores too. I'm seeing that a lot as well. But you know, I'm seeing even big stores like um, Macy's, they're now beginning to go on consignment because they get lumbered with a lot. But there again, they're pretty brutal with their chargebacks. You've probably heard about that too. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things that I see, especially I have quite a bit of experience in the with the VC venture capital world, um, brands like, and I'll give you an example. We were talking 
uh, with the founder of Fox and Robin, which is an apparel brand recently. Um, and he was talking about a brand called Outdoor Voices. And he was saying how, you know, brands like that, they started, they raised an enormous amount of money, um, kind of became extremely aggressive with their acquisition and didn't get their unit economics right. And now they're suffering to stay afloat because they basically, they could afford to spend more getting customers than they actually were making from them. And so right now reverting that, it's really, really difficult. But the, the challenge that he was talking about is as, as a bootstrap brand, apparel brand, it was impossible for him to compete with some of those larger brands because he simply could not afford large runs of product. Because, you know, the payment terms were like, you know, like 120 days for a big brand and maybe like upfront for him. And he just doesn't have the liquidity. So like, how do you see some of these smaller brands being able to get out of that and start playing in the big leagues well, without raising financing? Well, it's difficult to find, raise finances. I know, do you remember the designer at Nasty Gal? He did yeah. very well. Yeah, and um, she grew her company and it kind of grew and imploded, right? But you know, there are companies who've done very well, but it's a very, very difficult business. Um, so I'm working with one company, she's in Colorado and she's doing like leggings for runners and she's got some special, some special um, patented parts to it. And she's just, she's selling at gyms. So she goes and sells in the gyms and she does parties and she sells on a website. She's it's called Prickly Pear. She's doing quite, quite well. So there, you know, it's, as you know, when you start your own business, you're a one man band, then where do you go? You know, in a way, I'm facing that now because I, when I closed the FBI, I had people working for me, and now I'm, you know, a consultant on my own. And so things like, as you said earlier, how do you sell things without social media? So it's you need to have people who can help you with that type of um, marketing. And so that's my next move. One of the things that we've seen successful recently is. So in the traditional sense, you would build a product, you would take that product to market and you would try to sort of look for customers to, to buy that product and then build a brand over time and build credibility over time. We've seen that process sort of reverse in the last few years. You have this influencers that have tremendous social clout. They have credibility, they have big communities, the fans behind them. It, and then they go and launch brands and like, almost anything they launch has immediate adoption because they've built a strong community. And so there's an argument to be made around, if you want to launch something, build a community first and then worry about launching the product after. Like start with distribution, essentially. Yes. Uh, and if you have that community, then you know whatever you push out, you're going to have immediate traction. Yeah, that's a very good point. Very important point. In fact, you know, with my book now, I'm getting you know, people saying, oh, we want to do your social media. I'm build building a new website and... Uh, gosh, I, you know, it's a matter of who do you trust as well. I had somebody building my website, he's been building it for a year and a half and screwed me over. And then now I'm going to back to the original designer. So it's, it's, it's an ongoing issue, isn't it? Well, the question is like, you know, is, is really building a website the answer? Because you can build an amazing website and have a beautiful site and be very clear and, you know, mm -hmm. polished, but then nobody goes yes. to it. Right. Nobody does. It. It. And so it's really, is really, I guess the challenge for you is, is really the right thing to do to build a website or is the right thing to do to build a community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then, and then once that community is strong enough, then you can start bringing out products that they can consume, you know, in the form of like content, in the form of like um, information products, maybe uh, in the form of a newsletter, um, and then start engaging that community more and more. Yeah, it's, it, I've planned to do is to market the book. I'm going to, the book is in like 19 chapters and there are all different parts to it, whether it's finance or website, interview somebody who's a financial person and you know, do 10 minute little interviews as a teaser for the book. And I have a 14,000 database that I have from when I had my, my FBI, Fashion Business Incorporated. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of getting myself organized and getting it all ready to go and then I can launch it. That's my idea of doing it anyway. Yeah, engaging engaging those 14,000 people with products and services and, you know, content that is relevant to yeah. them and they could respond to and then slowly moving them into other services. Right. Um, we've seen that. We've seen that brands that start that way, like start with distribution. They're having a much better time at the moment because there's so many products out there that, it's almost like anything you launch, there's going to be another product similar to it in market already. Yeah. So you're just going to be bashing elbows with those others. And so, but if you have a strong community and you know people that truly trust you and you have a credibility with them, then do you have do you have a brand? I know when I when I first started doing this, I, I think I was the only first one ever coming out with that the business side, and now everybody's doing it. You know, so it's okay, is it the highest form of flattery to get knocked off? But I think I was, I can say that I was the original one to be teaching entrepreneurships and now it's, you know, business fashion and everybody. It's a great, definitely a form of flattery. Absolutely. You're a pioneer in that. I have to send you a book. Send me your address. Well, I will. It's it's very close. So I'll, we'll send you the address yeah. and uh, we'd love to have one. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but Francis, this is amazing. Thank you. I mean, thank you for giving us some oh, time. Thank you. You have such an interesting story. Well, yeah, I've had, um, had a pretty interesting, exciting adventures, you know, and working with the United Nations has been another quite interesting. Peru, have you been to Peru? That was fabulous. People there were great. I have not. Worth have a not. trip. People are great. Then Nepal, little different culture, um, but the, you know, it was Kashmir goods. And Egypt recently, of course, it was all because of COVID, we had to Zoom meetings and out of 54 Zoom meetings, they didn't turn up for 24. You know, men, it's men, it's a man's world. And so yeah. I, when I f sent my final report and I said, I'm sending it in a Word document because you might want to change it. My, <laughs> I was a little pissed off. You, know? <laughs> you might want it's to edit it, exactly. <laughs> so well, that's wonderful. Where, do, where does this get shown, your uh, podcast? So it's going to be, it's going to be on social media on Instagram. It's going to be on YouTube and it's going to be on Spotify. Right. You send me the link and I'll yeah, and send. Absolutely. As soon as we post it, um, we'll send you the links and then we'll send you a couple of clips as well that you can oh, use. That's very good of you. Look forward to meeting you sometime. Yeah. So you're, you too, Francis. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? What is, uh, what is the website? Uh, fashionforprofit.com. Fashionforprofit.com. And then I'm Francis with an E. I was, lots of people spell it with the I and I keep saying I'm not the Pope yet, but <laughs> awesome. you never know. It's great meeting you, Francis. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for giving us some time. <laughs>